we are working our way through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, and um, we are working on chapter 31. Um, chapter 31, as I say every time, has a distinction of the longest title of any chapter of the state of man after death and of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, so we've been working our way through. We talked about the intermittent state, and then uh, last week we started talking about the distinction between the righteous and the wicked in the intermediate state. Now, just as a reminder, the intermediate state is, is what we refer to. Is that a word from the Bible? No, that's not a word from the Bible. It's a word that we use to refer to that time where the body and the soul are separated, where the body and the soul are separated, which happens at death right now, and then, of course, at the resurrection, then the body and the soul will be rejoined. Not true for everyone. There have been a few where that's not the case. Elijah, remember Elijah, taken up to heaven in his body. Enoch, taken to heaven in his body. And Christ, who already is in his glorified body. So for them, uh, different. But for everybody else, you're going to have the intermediate state to deal with. So, um, not to deal with, to enter into. That's better. Anyway, um, so we're working our way through that. And we just finished talking about the condition of the righteous, and we got to the scripture references for this. So let me read to you uh, what these references are, these footnotes are. Uh, Luke twenty three forty three, and uh, this is my go to passage. So who is it? Christ is talking to the thief on the cross. That's right. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So, again, we see here a very clear indication that uh, he was not going to sleep. He was not going to uh, purgatory or any other state. He was actually going to be with Christ yet that day. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1, 6, and 8. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that, whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He's covering this teaching that when you die, you will be absent from your body, but this is better because you will be present with the Lord. And then Hebrew, I'm sorry, Philippians 1.23, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Now this is a reference to the fact that Paul is saying that, look, there's a difficulty here with do you want to die or not, right? This, this fine line that we have to walk as believers where we don't want to die, but we do want to be with Christ. Are you with me on this? We shouldn't want to be gone because we need to fulfill his purpose for us in our lives and be used as his ambassadors and be used to uh, fulfill his will. And that's what Paul is referring to there. Hebrews 12.23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. What is he referring to? He's referring to those who have died before, they are now in the spirit, they are not in their bodies, and they have been made perfect. They are no longer sinning, we talked about that, that, the, that you no longer sin after there is a separation of the body and soul, and that's what that verse is referring to. So, now uh, we're going to start out with um, a nice few pages of notes on uh, questions regarding the intermediate state of believers. So, these are questions that uh, people ask. We've just covered the intermediate state. That was it. That's what the confession has to say. So there usually are some things that people think of that they are not quite sure about. They wonder about. And so we are going to cover some of those questions now and uh, talk about the answers. Um, you'll see that I have scriptural references in here. Uh, we're not going to turn to every one of them. Um, I'm just going to go through and talk about the uh, points as we go. So question number one. Oh, well, so here's our intro. <laughs> what does the scripture say in response to the questions? Oh, my laser. My laser's not working. Oh, there, wait. I must be getting weak on the batteries. We'll save it for changing the slides. All right. 
What does the scripture say in response to the questions that are asked? Well, again, Sam Waldron came up with this list of, of uh, questions, which uh, I think was fantastic, so I'm using that as my basis. In this list of questions, we find the central teachings of the scripture regarding the state of believers upon their death. So some of the things we've already talked about, but there's more, a lot more. And explore further the relevant scriptures regarding what we can know and can expect, what we know and can expect. Where do spirits of believers go at death? Where do the spirits of the believers go at death? Well, the answer is they go to be with Christ. That's the answer. They go to be with Christ. Here's some of the references. We just read a few of those. This is the most significant question for believers. The pri- is the primary assurance given to the righteous in scriptures. In that sense, this one answer is the answer to all our questions about what happens after death. So, the bottom line is, is that this is what matters. Are you with me? This is what matters. Where do you go when you die? To be with Christ. Well, what about my parrot? You're going to be with Christ. Focus on Christ, not the parrot. Are you with me on this? A dog? No. You understand what I'm saying? Like, this answers the question. What's it going to be like? Is it ever going to rain? Is it going to be snow? I don't think so. Not like Michigan. Here we are, April. Snow. At any rate, in the Old Testament, God progressively revealed the mysteries of life after death. Central to that revelation revelation was that death would not break the relationship between God and the righteous. And those verses all refer to that. The idea that the righteous will not break in their fellowship with God. In fact, it will be much closer to him. So David writes on this. You see this in the Psalms. We see this throughout the Scripture, these references to the fact that upon death you will be with God. Is Christ mentioned? Do we see Christ in the Old Testament? We don't see his name mentioned. It's progressive revelation. That means it wasn't until Christ came that we have a greater revelation of Scripture about exactly who was going to be the Messiah, all those things. The basic promise and hope of the Old Testament is refined with the full revelation of Jesus Christ. Here we find a clearer picture of where we reside and who we will reside with. So we do see that in the Scripture as we go, but in the Old Testament, we continue to see this. It's not changed, so that's an important distinction. Because there are those who will say, well, God changed. They don't say it directly. I shouldn't say that they say that. They don't say that. What they say is, it was different then. God acted different. God had different plans. Those changed. What they're really saying is God changed. He's not immutable. He's not unchanging. He changed. It's not true. What we see in the Old Testament is what he had decided could be revealed at that time. Let me ask you a question. Those of you who have known everything that the Scripture says about heaven, I don't know who that is, but those of you who do, everybody, look at Paul. No, I'm just kidding. Paul doesn't say that either. Everybody that knows everything about heaven would still not know everything about heaven. Why? It's not all revealed. You see what I'm saying? It's not all revealed. So do we have a greater revelation? Of course we do, right? We have the whole scripture now. They didn't in the Old Testament times, right? So now we have more. Look, even during the time of Christ, was everything written in the New Testament? No, were all the prophecies of Revelation already revealed? No. In fact, there's a lot of prophecies of Revelation that are nowhere else in Scripture. They're just in Revelation. There are a whole bunch that are in other places in Scripture, but there are a bunch that are just in Revelation. We see things clarified through the writings of the apostles, probably in response, and most of them you can see it right in the book, where they write in response to something that's happening in a local church, They write in response to a problem that they see is happening with believers, and they give a greater explanation. Now, is it possible that Christ addressed all those things when he was on earth? Yes. We don't have all the words of Christ in the Bible, do we? We don't have all that. Maybe the apostles could explain it because he told them directly. Right? He revealed it then. Very possible. We don't even know if that's true. Because God didn't think we needed to know that. All we need to know is that his word is his word, and we need to trust it and realize that that's what he has for us to know. 
any secret knowledge beyond that is human pride desiring to gain it. So we have to be careful with that. And you don't, okay, can, can we all acknowledge something? You wish you had it? You wish you had secret knowledge? You do. I mean, you do. You don't know what, but you, if there was like, man, did you know that this is going on? Or that this little, there's the secret code in the Bible. And if you turn the Bible 90 degrees, and you close your right eye, and you squint your left eye, and it's, it's sunset, and you look at the words on the page, it tells you things that you wouldn't know otherwise. I'm going to try it. Secret knowledge. Secret knowledge. We, we do, we, you know what it is? We want to know more. It's not because we necessarily, although there is some pride in there, it's not because we necessarily want to know more than everybody else. It's just that if there's some kind of special knowledge, we want to know that too. Right? We want the inside scoop. Right? This is true. This is why a lot of the agnostics and others have made it so appealing to people. Oh, this is the second testament of Christ? Oh, well, those guys, they don't even have all the books? I want to know what this book says. Where did it come from? Well, the angel, of Mar- the angel Marani. What? He made these golden tablets. He gave them to a guy who in a dream ran with the tablets, dropped them, and lost them. So then he had to listen into his hat. And his hat told him what the tablets said. And somebody wrote it down for him. You say, that's not even sound like a good movie. That's the Mormons. That's the Mormons. I'm kind of putting it in a nutshell. But that's it. Joseph Smith literally in the basement listened and put his head in a hat and then dictated what the angels told him. A little different than the rest of the scripture. No? But this is what they believe is the second test. You see how it's, it's like, whoa, here's some secret knowledge that we didn't know. It wasn't out there. It wasn't part of how I was raised. Do you see what I'm saying? So they desire it. We should not be seeking more than what God has already told us. Should we make sure that the Bible that we have is an accurate translation? You bet we should. You bet, absolutely. Why? Because otherwise it's man, not God. Right? If I take the scriptures and I say, I'm going to give you the Brian Irvin version, and I'm going to call it the new modern reverse perverse version, let's say, and I just basically give my, my summary of what passages of scripture say, and I use today's modern language, I even use some acronyms like LOL, whatever, I put all that stuff in there, and I write this Bible. Okay, is that God's word anymore? Well, you know, actually, it's my interpretation of God's Word, right? It's my interpretation of God's Word. It's what I think that it says. Except now, I just put my thinking and brain in place of God's. I just supersede in Him. So, does it matter? It matters. It matters. But let's be content with what He's given us. This is what we need to know. Can we think about those other things? Like... Do the apostles suspect a little bit when Judas got up and left? Were they a little suspicious? Were there others that were talking to them about we should grab swords and go bust him out? We don't know. We don't know. We don't need to know. Are you with me? Wait, now I'm getting your thinking. thinking. You guys, stop, stop. <laughs> I'm just throwing out something like it's just information we don't have that God doesn't believe we need to have. God knows we don't need to have. So that's it. That's all we have. Christ himself has willed that where he is, his people will also be. As a result, when his people die, they go to be with him. And all these passages all talk about that fact. That Christ wants us to be with him, and when we die, we will be with him. There is no personal relationship. If there is no personal relationship, God, no personal knowledge of Christ, There can be no confidence in death. Our relationship with him is the very confidence for us regarding the afterlife. Have you ever met anybody who contradicts that? It's common. Right? It's common. 
you might actually try to look for an opening to witness to them. And they'll say, well, I know where I'm going on dying. They say this confidence, right? I'm going to heaven. Yeah, my whole family is Christians, so I'm going with them. I've heard that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bad like some of these other people. I, I keep my nose clean. Yeah, I make a few mistakes, but, you know, whatever. I know I'm going. I'm confident. Have you heard have you run people like that before? This is pretty common. They have this false confidence. Now, what's the reality for them? Well, the reality is they don't know, right? And however great their confidence is, it is easy to be shaken as soon as they get cancer. As soon as a loved one dies. As soon as it gets real. Not theoretical. Now, their faith is tested. So is yours. So is yours. But you can have faith because Christ said that when we die, we will go to be with him. Amen. Amen. The chief blessing for believers after death is being with Christ. It's not a mansion, even though that's good. It's not no more sin, even though that's good. The chief blessing is being with Christ. Only love for him will make that existence desirable to us. The blessing is not the carnal and self-interested idea, popular today, that the best thing about heaven is that we'll be happy. Have you heard that? Where do you think that comes from? Me, me, me. That's where it comes from. Self-centered egotism. Oh, you know, hey, just, just think, you know, when you die, you'll be happy. Or, have you ever said this before? This is really easy to say. Really easy to say. I'm sorry you lost such and such. But they're happy now. We do tend to say that. And that is true. But you know what's important? They're with Christ. They're with Christ. That far surpasses their personal happiness. Right? You know, we, we really don't have a complete picture of heaven. We're going to talk about the picture that we have, and I think a few things are going to surprise you that the Scripture teaches about heaven. But the whole idea is, is that heaven is not just for your pleasure. It's not. It's for you to be close to God, which is the ultimate for us to desire. And frankly, as you move through life and you're at different stages of life, there's different points where you actually come to a realization that nothing really matters except Christ. It's really it. And if you don't understand what I'm talking about, read the book of Ecclesiastes every day for a month, and you'll start to get a glimpse by the time you get done to the month. Where is Christ? Christ is highly exalted in heaven. That's the whole question and answer. That's it. He is highly exalted in heaven. That's where he is. Is he down the road at another church this morning? No. Is his spirit? Well, if they're believers, yes. But Christ is in heaven. He's highly exalted. Here's the verses. Take a look at them if you'd like. Next question. What is heaven? <laughs> Maybe we could have started with this as a kickoff, but that's all right. Heaven is the special dwelling of God where he peculiarly manifests his glory. It is the only place where his glory is fully manifested. That is heaven. Scriptures use the term heaven to describe the physical universe that we can see and observe, right? Like the birds are in the heavens, right? You hear the, see these references. Christ looked up to the heavens as the Spirit of God descended from the heavens. You know, we see these things. But it also uses it to describe the place that is invisible to us, which is the special abode of God and his angels. So we see these references. Now, this is what makes us believe that heaven is above us, right? Right? And you see these things, these different things that reference us, Christ, others that reference us, things that descend from the heavens. We see these things, right? Now, okay, so have you ever thought about the fact that 
they were in the Middle East when these things happened. And what's straight above them is not the same thing that's straight above us. We point different directions. Thought about that? You understand what I'm saying? Like, and then the earth rotates. So now it's heaven over there? Or is it over there? Over there? Where is it? We don't know. We don't know. We know that Stephen, his eyes were opened and he saw it. So does that mean that if we were glorified or outside of our bodies, we would see it right where we're at right now? That somehow it's existing in the same place as earth, just in a different reality, realm? We don't know. We don't really have a word to describe that. We don't really have a word to describe that. All we can really talk about is what heaven is and recognize that it's not here with us, in our presence. We don't see it. We're not in it. This isn't heaven. Praise the Lord. There are all of these scriptures talking about different places that are not like where we are. Are you with me on this? And they're references to heaven. People die, they go to heaven. The beggar was walking in heaven with Abraham. Remember that? Looked across the chasm, rich man saw him from across the cabin, called out to him, talked to him. Remember that? That kind of brings up the question, where is hell? Same. We don't know. Is it under us? Is it like heaven in a plane that we can't see? right now. We don't know. If you believe in the flat earth theory, you're probably good, because then you could just say, oh yeah, it's not a flat earth. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying, right? I mean, it's not, so some people say, well, hell is in the center of the earth. I've heard that. Through the ages, there's been some scholars that have suggested that. And you say, well, through science, we know that's not true. Really? If you think that's true, Look up the science on that. They have no idea what's in the center of the earth. They don't have any idea what's beyond a few miles of the crust of the earth. They don't don't have any idea. It could be hollow. They don't know. It was about five years ago that they changed what they think is in the center of the earth. Changed it. Not molten nickel anymore. You hear that one? It's molten nickel. Molten nickel. How did they come up with that? They have no idea. There is no equipment that we have that can penetrate through the rock layers more than a couple miles. That's it. Nothing else. Nothing else. Is it lava? We don't know. We don't know. Could it be hell? Could be. Could be lava hell. We don't know. We don't have to know. If we did have to know, where would it be? In the Bible. It'll be in the Bible. Now, because we see this term heaven in different references, there are three distinctions that we see in Scripture. These are the three references that we see. There's the airy heaven, which is like the atmosphere, right? It's where we are, it's above us, the atmosphere. There's the starry heaven, which is celestial. Right? The stars in heaven. We see that reference in Scripture. We see multiple references to stars in heaven. So that's another reference. Is that the same as our atmosphere where the birds fly? No. Can the birds fly out of the atmosphere to a star? Even if they were really, 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 really strong. No. No oxygen. The birds can't survive without oxygen. And we do know that the oxygen dissipates and then it's gone by the time you get to the contested International Space Station. At any rate, that was a little current event for you, just a half a current event. And then there is the heaven of God, the third thing, the heaven of God. So the first two, obviously, represent physical realities that we can see and observe. The third one is one that we have to trust the Scriptures on because we cannot see it. 
Paul writes of being caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, 4, and all biblical uses of the word heaven can easily be classified in terms of one of these meetings. So, was Paul talking about, look, okay, it, they're written in this list. That's not in the Bible. There's not a list in the Bible that says, here's the three heavens, okay? So when you see Paul saying he's caught up to the third heaven, is he referring to that list that just happens to be in that same order? Or is there a different layers of heaven? The ethereal kind. We don't know. We don't know. The heaven of God can be defined as the special dwelling place of God. Although God is everywhere present, he's peculiarly, peculiarly present in specific places and conditions. However, Scripture does teach that heaven is in particular his habitation. This can be most readily observed in 1 Kings chapter 8. And if you read that, you'll see that there's this description of what's happening in heaven, and this certainly is his habitation. Now, if you think back to some of the scriptures, you can think to places where God did make special appearances. That's kind of a weird way. <laughs> that sounds like he's a, he's a star or something. <laughs> Remember the covenant with Abraham? Remember the covenant with Abraham? Where he had to turn his back and God actually passed between the two halves of the animals to signify his commitment to that covenant, and Abraham had to turn his back so he could, because if he looked at God, he would die. Do you remember that? That was not the spirit of God. That was God in a special appearance. Not common. Special appearance. Are you with me on this? There are other places where we see this. But heaven can certainly be defined as the special dwelling place of God because the Scripture doesn't. The Scripture defines it that way. Is heaven then a place? Next question. Is heaven then a place? Yes. The answer is yes. The bodily state of Enoch, Elijah, and especially Jesus Christ, who are now in heaven, assures us that heaven is a physical place. Now, it's a bit of a noodle cooker, okay? I'm just going to be the first to admit that, that this is a bit of a noodle cooker, but I want you to think about this a little bit. It's going to start to blow your mind, and that's okay, because we're going to cover these things. Because they are physically present in their bodies in heaven, there are some things we can derive and know. Number one, there's oxygen in heaven. Why? Their physical bodies require it. Oxygen. There's gravity in heaven. Why? Your physical body requires it. Hmm. But it's not... Is heaven revolving around the sun? No! No! It's not! See, science has taught us that we should only believe that what's real is what we can observe. Isn't that true? Has science ever observed your soul separate from your body? No. Science has never observed that. Can't. Can't. There are many things that science cannot tell us. And, and I will have to, I'll just say this. And then this will make us get more hits on sermon audio. <laughs> it, it's truly whether you, it's either you believe in science or you believe in God. That's really the case. Now, that's the part that can get quoted out of context. I'm saying that because the reality is you have to trust God for what's real. And science to back it up. Not the other way around. You understand what I'm saying? Look, if we started our understanding of science with the basis of God's word, we would get much farther than if we start with our understanding of our own personal, private, uh, personal human perceptions. The scriptures tell us the world is round. Job, specifically, oldest written book in the Bible. God says to Job, talks about the circumference of the earth. How do you get a circumference? on a flat piece of earth. You can't. You can't. 
You know, we actually as Christians are excited when science finally catches up with the Scripture. So if you say, well, I believe... You know, who is who writes science? People! Who truly defines science? God. God. But who writes that paper, that theory, that textbook, that chapter in Wiki, whatever? People. Flawed. Not knowing all the information, people. So who should you trust? Science or the Bible? The Bible. Can science be used and should science be used to help us? Yes. God gave us the intellect to do this. He gives all kinds of information in Scripture about different things that help us. Science has helped us. Gives us better understandings of things. Some science probably hasn't helped us at all. But a lot has. We, we don't believe, like, Christians are not like, well, I don't believe in science. You know, that's the current trend, right? Is to say, well, Christians don't believe in science, and I believe in science, so of course I'm right and Christians are wrong. No, Christians believe in science, we just don't believe in fairy tales. Or whatever somebody wants to make up. Were there such things as dragons alive during man? Science says no. Used to. Have you heard the latest on science on dragons? Oh. There's been at least a couple of books by well-known authors who have now said it appears that dinosaurs may have been alive while man existed. Really? Finally, after 150 years, you've caught up. Of course, dinosaurs were around when man was right, because man was made in the beginning. He's been here the whole time. Since the first week of creation, man's been here. If dinosaurs existed, then they, of course they were alive at the same time. Of course, science was ignoring all of those unbelievably old cave drawings and paintings which showed dinosaurs and men. Hmm. How'd they explain that? They didn't. Science can't tell us the details about heaven. But God's word can. And it does. It tells us a lot. All those scripture references refer to these people going to heaven. It also talks about the physical reality of heaven. The physical reality of heaven. By the way, speaking of gravity, this is not a rabbit trail. Speaking of gravity, I know you probably think, here we go. Uh, Abraham and Lazarus were talking. And what does it say they were doing? But the rich man was across the gulf. What does it say they were doing? You're thinking, which Lazarus? The, the, I'm talking about the beggar, Lazarus, and Abraham. They were doing what? They were talking. They were talking as they... Yeah. What thing? As they walked. What's that mean? Gravity. Right? Some kind of surface walking on. Right? Some kind of chasm. Separation. Right? Are you with me on this? There's things that this does tell us. So, in other words, heaven isn't just a bunch of people floating on clouds. Are you with me? Isn't that? You see that popularly, right? Oh, when we die, we're going to go to heaven and we're going to be in the clouds with Jesus. Have you heard people say... And I don't even want to talk about motivations. Somebody who believes that they had a glimpse of heaven, they died, were revived, they had a glimpse of heaven. And they'll talk about how it was this ethereal thing where it was just all like clouds and fog and just had images of people would come into my view and things like this. And we were just kind of floating around and we didn't have any worries about anything like that and... That doesn't describe heaven like the Bible does. It doesn't describe heaven like the Bible does. Heaven is a place. It's an actual place. It's not a cloud. It's not 
some kind of fog, ethereal fog. It's a place. So that, by the way, that's a pretty good indicator when someone starts telling you that stuff. That doesn't match what the scriptures say. You're probably, you had a dream. It's not correct. It's not true. And by the way, isn't it also interesting that many, many times when this happens, it's not believers. Isn't that interesting? Many times. I, I've literally read the story of someone who talked about this happened to them, and then they became a true Christian. Really. You, you didn't see the, the hellfires. You weren't a believer. But God took you to heaven, gave you a little glimpse, and then brought you back so you could be a Christian. Does it match scriptures? No. No. So, this is the, the summary of that. I could have read this first, and we could have kept moving. By saying heaven is a place, we're saying it's a locality with actual spatial dimensions. What are the spatial dimensions? We don't know that part. But we know that there are a lot of people there, and we know that that is actually some kind of place where even in your spirit, it is as if you are in a body. Ooh. What? Huh? It's early. Come on, Brian. Think about this. Abraham and the beggar. This this is not my only go-to here. Abraham and the beggar, right? They're walking down the street and talking. What are they talking with? Their mouths. What are they walking with? Their legs, their feet, right? Are you with me? Where's their bodies on earth? Decaying or decayed. Hmm. So you're not, you're not some blob in the intermediate state. You take on a physical appearance of some type. Are you physical? We're going to get to that. But I do want you to remember that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ was talking with two departed saints. Who did the apostles say they were? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Now, Elijah... Caught up to heaven. Taken up to heaven in a chariot, quote-unquote. Taken up to... Was it a chariot? We don't know. Anyway, he described it as a chariot. In other words, it was something that transported him. Was it his physical body then that was standing on the mount with Christ? Yes, that's who he... He's still in his body. What about Moses? Moses' body was buried. Who buried him, by the way? God buried him. Moses' body was buried. So if Moses was there and was recognizable, now, you know why they recognized him? They had seen the Ten Commandments. They knew what he looked No. <laughs> Obviously, there was something special that allowed them to recognize who this was because they didn't have any pictures of Moses. Are you with me on this? Could Christ have actually said this is Moses? Could have Elijah have said it? Could Moses have said it? Could be. It's not in the scripture. Could be any of those. But the point is, it was clearly recognizably a human. Do you see what I'm saying? It was clearly a human. They recognized a person. However they figured it out, they recognized or acknowledged at some point that it was Moses. Are you with me on this? In other words, even though he was a spirit... He had the physical appearance of a person. Is there a place we see that with Christ? Oh, now I got you thinking. Do we see that with Christ? Okay, before I go to the go-to guy, because he's not in his head, he has the answer. Anybody have a guess? No guess. Paul, do we see it? Do we believe we see it? Go ahead. In the garden. In the garden. Remember what happens? Mary comes across Christ. Doesn't recognize him immediately. Remember that? 
when she does recognize him, he says, don't touch me yet. Remember that? Later, do people touch him? Yes. We believe we're seeing him pre-resurrected body there. Ooh. How's that work? You know what? We don't know. But we do see that Christ told her specifically not to touch him yet. And yet, she recognized him. Not at first. Now, why? Did he actually look different? Maybe. Maybe he had a hood on a robe so she couldn't see his face. Maybe it was a little dark so she couldn't see his face. We don't know that. All we know is is that when Moses was on the Mount of Transfiguration, they recognized him and he was a spirit. All these references we see to people who are in heaven or who are uh, in, with Christ, we see references to them having, having an actual physical body. Remember Revelation, the martyrs. They're beneath the throne. And what are they doing? When will we be avenged? That's what they're asking. When will we be avenged? Now that's all kinds of scary things right there. First of all, that means they know what's going on on earth. And they haven't been avenged. Hmm. Is dad watching us? We don't know. They also had voices. They were also in a physical place. Right? You with me? We know that heaven is a place because things that take a physical space are in heaven. Mentioned this already. We know Enoch and Elijah in their bodies are there. Jesus Christ's bodily presence there is the most important, is most important. And there are many more scriptures that affirm this. So all those scriptures talk about the fact that there are these physical elements present in heaven. It's not just an ethereal thing. It's a physical place. Is there time in heaven? Ooh, I struggle with this one. I did. Now I'm convinced. Yes. Time in heaven. Now, this is very interesting. Because I was definitely of the opinion that there was no time in heaven, that time would cease. Way too many scriptures contradict that. Now, here's what we, where we go on this. And this is what, why this has become a popular thing. Because God transcends time. God existed before time. Are you with me on this? Now, again, this is kind of a, it's like that, the theory that makes it difficult for us to completely grasp the concept because our minds are based on time. Our entire existence is based on time. So for us to think of anything in terms outside of time is hard. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's hard. The answer is, yes, there's time in heaven. Since only God transcends time, the created beings who dwell in heaven experience the limitations not only of space, but also of time. Look, don't forget this. When you die, you don't become God. You, you don't become God. You don't assume God-like qual- uh, qualities. You become perfected as a human creature. How do you become perfected? You don't sin anymore. Now, this is one of the things that we kind of struggle with. We tend to want to believe that there is this perfection in really everything, and that going to heaven will allow us to achieve that perfection. Are you with me on this? Do you not think that to some extent or hear that regularly? You do. Will everybody look the same in heaven? You don't think that, right? But you think it's going to be the better version of you. Right? You do. I mean, honestly, you do. Is that possible? Absolutely. God didn't create a baby and he didn't create an old man. Right? He created a man. How old was he? 17 and a half years old. No, we don't know that. We don't know that. We don't know that. 
Let's say that Adam had brown hair and brown eyes and golden bronze skin. And so did Eve. Let's say that was the case. We don't know that. They could have been blonde and blue-eyed. Right? They could have been green-eyed and pale and red hair, as any true Scott knows is true. No. We, the point is, we don't know, but here's what we do know. We are different from each other. Is there perfection in hair color, in eye color, in body type? Oh, now we're pushing the buttons. Well, yeah, there's going to be, right? Is it a muscular, ripped, you know, thin, all those things? Isn't that the perfect body type? Really? Leave the United States. Leave Western culture. They don't think that. Other cultures don't think that. That's what we think. That's what we think. Is there a perf perfect human look? And that's how we'll all look in heaven. Well, we don't think that. We think we'll look like us, right? Maybe it's younger. Maybe it's thinner. Maybe it's with more hair, right? I'm hoping. Right, Stu? You with me on this one? Paul, a little bit. Tom, I don't know. You look pretty good. That's what we really think. We don't know that, though. Let's be careful not to ascribe what we think it might be with what the Scripture actually says it is. Because that starts to get dangerous. Because then we start to ascribe things that the Scripture doesn't say, and we start to believe things that the Scripture doesn't tell us, like, there's no more time. Where's all the Scripture references that talk about time ending? you know that your heart wouldn't exist with time? The atoms in your body couldn't operate without time? You couldn't actually be physical. You couldn't be in a body without time. You say, well, it's going to be a special body. True. Resurrected body. But there's a whole bunch of things in time that the Bible talks about in heaven. That's kind of a problem. Where's an example? Who can think of an example of this? And I just quoted it. Who do I say it? Do I say it? Okay, good. Don't say it. Who can tell me an example of time in heaven? A good example of time in heaven. Anybody? I just said it. About the throne. The martyrs. What did they say? When will we be avenged? time. They were not outside time. And this doesn't, it's not like he sees the throne and that's what they're saying. He saw the throne. John's description is he saw the throne. It was later that we see that happening. Not the only example, but I just brought it up. Let's, let's keep looking at the, my points here. God is not limited to space and time. However, the influence of Greek philosophy has transferred this characteristic to heaven and its inhabitants. There are several scripture examples of time applying to heaven. Revelation 6.11 clearly indicates those residing in heaven were aware of and existing in time. That's the martyrs below, before, underneath the throne. Several passages indicate that the state of eternity is one that can be measured like our current age or world. Some specifically refer to the age to come. Clearly a reference to the time to come. In other words, we see references in scriptures of the age to come. Not the end of time. It's an age. What is an age? A period of time. The references in scripture are to the age to come. The time to come. Not the end of time, outside of time. See, it kind of makes it all kind of weird. There's a lot of questions that you can't really answer well when you start ascribing no time to heaven. If there's no time, how does a river flow? 
if, if there was no time, how does a river flow? You can't explain it. All you can really do is say something like, well, it just does, because God wills it. How about, how does a tree grow? Growth would actually represent time. Would represent time. Now, if you think about it, isn't that better? I mean, really. Would you rather have time? Wouldn't you rather say, like, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? You're not going to believe this. I can't believe I got this set up. I am going to spend a week with David and Solomon. And we're going to talk about wisdom. Really? Yeah, come on. You come too. Nice. No time brings up so many questions that we can't really answer. How will we exist outside of time? Well, here's the beautiful thing. God didn't design you to exist outside time. He didn't create you before time. He created you after time. After time. So that's a good answer in itself. But the Greeks are the ones that ascribe this notion. What did they do? I think. Well, let's read the rest of these. Revelation 10, 6, which happened to the phrase, which ends with the phrase, there should be time no longer, is the only verse in Scripture that people will use to say, there is no time. There's no time. But if you read the passage where it says that verse, and you don't isogete the verse, you don't isolate the verse, you exegete the verse, you consider it in the passage, you can see very clearly that what it's talking about is the idea that God's judgment will no longer wait. There's no longer any time for God's judgment to wait. It has to happen now. That's what that passage is talking about. It doesn't refer to the eternal state of mankind in any way. It doesn't refer to it. Here's what the Greeks said. There's a divine spark in all of us. From the flame of the divine of God. And that you, your soul, is actually a spark from that flame. Truly, they believed that you had the spark of God in you. All of us had the spark of God in us. And that spark is timeless. So when you die, you will fulfill what you were originally created to be, which is to grow that spark into a God. You will be a God. Outside time. Ethereal. It's just not scriptural at all. Not scriptural at all. They did this to explain some things that they couldn't explain. Like, why does man have a conscience? Why does man not just do evil all the time? Why does man restrain himself? Why does man do any good? You see? They don't comprehend the idea that man made in God's image has certain laws written on his heart. He knows he shouldn't break them. Sometimes he does. But the Greeks didn't believe that. So they had to come up with some explanation. So what they believed was there was this spark. Heaven's a real place. Some of the same characteristics that we experience on earth. One of these characteristics is time. And this question we'll start next week. How is heaven described in the Bible? It is described as the city of God and the paradise of God. So we'll pick that up next week. Let's close in a word of prayer.